Well, we are in our second week of our Advent sermon series that we're calling No Room. Last week, we looked at why Jesus had to be fully human, but we also talked about how many people couldn't accept that God could possibly be fully human. And today we're going to look at the other side of this issue, that Jesus is also fully God. Understanding the humanity and the divinity of Jesus has always been hard. In fact, in the first century, the church was growing like crazy. Evangelists were on a mission to take the gospels to all the ends of the known world. And between the time that Jesus died and rose again from the dead in about 30 AD, to the time that the last of the 12 disciples, John, took his last breath around 100 AD, the church had grown to about 25,000 people. But then in the next 200 years, things exploded, and by the year 300 or so, the church had grown to about 20 million people. And so as you can imagine, along with this rapid growth, there came this need for Christians to agree on the core beliefs of the faith so that new believers could be carefully instructed in the faith. And the biggest challenge of all was probably Jesus. What to teach about Jesus? Who was Jesus anyhow? It was essential to get that question right. And the church at the time was by no means unanimous on the issue. Plus, there were lots of competing beliefs from the secular culture. The ancient world had lots of myths about the gods coming down from heaven in human form temporarily so that they could interact with human beings. And they had other legends about human beings becoming gods. And then they had stories about demigods who were the offspring of of a human and a god. But who was Jesus? As you can imagine, this is something that's very hard to put into words. I mean, how do you explain something that has never, ever happened before? How do you talk about the mystery of the Godhead? Well, to resolve this issue, in the year 325, the Roman Emperor Constantine called a church council in Nicaea, in Asia Minor, today's Turkey, and about 300 church leaders came. And for two months, they put their heads together and they worked hard to create a document that would explain exactly who Jesus is. And from that came the Nicene Creed and the words that we affirmed in our faith earlier today. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light of the light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. And then the creed goes on to tell us why God did this. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. God was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary But what in the world does that even mean? Well, the word incarnate, if you're a word geek like me, you probably know that it comes from the root word carni. And con carni means with meat. Now, you might 
think that that sounds all theological and abstract and maybe hard to follow, but think about chili. Think about a good pot of wintertime chili and think about chili con carne. What does that mean? It means spicy stew with meat. And so what what does incarnate mean? It means that God has meat, that God put on flesh, that God put on skin. This is more than some kind of abstract theology that makes no difference in our lives. This very truth can change our lives and can change our eternity. God did it for us and for our salvation. I was baptized when I was about one month old. My parents took the vows that they made on my behalf at my baptism seriously, and they raised me in the faith. That meant worship and Sunday school every Sunday when I was growing up. I remember being active in my church, and I remember confirming my baptismal vows that had been made for me. I I confirmed them for myself when I was in seventh grade. I believed what I was taught without much questioning, but I have to say that I didn't always understand very well the teachings that I had been taught, like Jesus was man and God, or that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins. I perhaps understood them age appropriately at the time, but I didn't understand them fully. Well, lots of people end up believing that Jesus was a wise, kind teacher of morality, which we should just try to emulate and follow. But then they stop far short of believing that Jesus is also God. Well, the great theologian and author C.S. Lewis wrote about this issue this way in his well-known book, Mere Christianity. He said this. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. You know, I think C.S. Lewis puts it in a way that really makes us sit up and pay attention, doesn't it? You can't dismiss Jesus by saying he was just a great moral teacher or an extraordinary human being. Long, long before Jesus was born, the prophets of Israel gave us a glimpse of this very truth. We hear it and read it, especially in the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 7, he spoke of a virgin giving birth to a son who would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And then in chapter 9, there's another strange utterance from Isaiah. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He's called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, what kind of human being alone could be given these names? But that's not all, because beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah begins a prophecy about a voice who will cry out, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, God is about to do something, and we need to get ready for it. And as we read deeper into these prophecies of Isaiah, we come to chapter 50, where he writes, The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. This is called the suffering servant narrative of Isaiah. And it seems to be referring to the nation of Judah who is personified in, this, in these passages as a figure of a suffering servant. But many of the verses seem to point beyond just Judah to what Jesus experienced. And early Christians saw it as a prophecy of what would happen to Jesus. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, it becomes even more prophetic where we read, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. How could a mere human do this? How could another person bear our sufferings? Well, I would venture to say that every single one of us here today have at one point or other in our lives been recipients of grace and mercy from people, maybe your parents or your siblings or even a good friend. Maybe some of us have even received the kindness from a stranger or someone we didn't know well from time to time, a policeman that pulls you over for a traffic violation but sends you off with only a warning, or maybe you find yourself with a flat tire and a good Samaritan stops to help you change it. But this suffering servant that Isaiah is talking about goes way beyond a moment like that and actually takes upon himself, this servant, our punishment for our transgressions, sins, and iniquities. But it's not just the prophets who see this. Luke's gospel tells us the story of the Annunciation. Remember when the angel comes to Mary and announces to her that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And when the birth occurs, a whole chorus of angels proclaim to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The angels clearly believed it. So not only did the prophets predict it and the angels proclaim it, Jesus also preached it. 
about himself, and it got him in plenty of trouble from time to time. In John's gospel in chapter 7, division begins because Jesus makes some pretty startling claims. He says some outrageous things like, I know God because I am from him and he sent me. Or I am the light of the world. Or I am not of this world. Or whoever obeys my words will never see death. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. And he said, I and the Father are one. Well, the religious elites of Jesus' day knew exactly what this meant. And their response was to call him raving mad, demon-possessed, and a blasphemer. They tried many times to arrest him, and when that didn't work, they tried to stone him to death. And the reason why people wanted to kill Jesus was because he was claiming to be God. He said one time before Abraham was, and remember that Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus, he said, before Abraham was, I am nomenclature for God. In other words, Jesus is proclaiming that he is the pre-existing one. And when his fellow Jews heard that, they were so scandalized that they picked up rocks to stone him to death. That's how Jesus' fellow Jews felt about him. And why? Because Jesus claimed to be God. And for a Jew, the idea that God would become a human being was blasphemy. It was the worst possible disgrace. And even among the raving fans of Jesus, people who considered themselves to be his followers, who saw incredible miracles only God could do, like Jesus opening up the eyes of the blind or making a lame person walk or turning water into wine, they still had trouble with that. You see, Jesus had this sublime, incredible teaching that could have only come from God. But to believe he was God was more than they could believe. But it wasn't just the angels who knew it. The demons knew it as well. Luke's gospel also records this event for us in the fourth chapter. He writes, in the synagogue, there was a, a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. And he cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Those who knew him best, who lived with him for the three years that he was preaching and teaching on this earth, were observers of all that he did. And they were convinced of who Jesus was. Oh, it would take a while and a resurrection to fully convince them. But every single one of them spent the remainder of their life going to the ends of the world to tell as many people as they possibly could, wherever the mission took them, that Jesus was God in the flesh. This is what John wrote in his prologue to his gospel. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John, in this passage, is using the Greek word logos, which is translated as the word word with a capital W. 
It's where we get our English word logic from. And when the Greeks heard the word logos, they would have thought of the logical, rational principle that they believed governed the world. You see, the Greeks believed that there was this invisible, intelligent, integrating force behind the universe, holding the whole universe together. John is giving a nod to the Greeks, and he's saying there is a power like that in this world. And if there was not such a power in this world, then our being here would simply be the result of some kind of cosmic accident. If our life is simply the result of some cosmic accident a billion years ago, then our lives are nothing more than a Shakespeare than as a Shakespeare play where he writes a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's not very inspiring, is it? But a fair conclusion. But John is saying there is this logical, rational, intelligent power behind the universe. And John understands this power as God. And John is saying that Logos, the force, became one of us on that first Christmas, became a human being so that we could know who God is. There are lots of people walking around in this world that don't quite understand the meaning of their lives. They feel like their life is like a book with a missing chapter. And John is saying that this logos, the invisible power that holds the world together, became a human being named Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the missing chapter that will make the rest of the book of our life make sense if we will only embrace it. John teaches that Jesus Christ mysteriously was both 100% human and 100% God. Why is this so important, you might ask? Well, here's why. If Jesus Christ was only human, then Of course, he could die in someone's place. That's happened before in the annals of history. An innocent person dies on behalf of a guilty person, takes their place as a sacrifice for someone else's wrongdoing. But how could a mere mortal pay for the sins of the whole world? But if Jesus Christ was both 100% human and 100% God, if Jesus was both a finite human being and the infinite God, then you have someone who could die, not for just one other person's sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And that's why John says, whoever comes to him, you can have your sins washed away, and you can actually become a daughter or a son of God. And that's why we celebrate the true Christmas story, because God has become a human being. He's taken on human flesh so that we might know who God is. So the rational principle, the word, becomes flesh, con carne, with meat, so that we might know God. John tells us that his own people didn't receive him They just couldn't believe that someone they knew since he was a little baby could be God in the flesh. No room for the Son of God. 
And yet John says to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When you hear that expression, receive him or receive Christ, if you've heard that a few times, you may envision a one-time deal where you welcome Christ into your life, where you receive him in your life, and then that's it. But it's so much more than that. It's really much more like any close friendship or close relationship that you have. You don't just welcome a friend once in your life. You want to welcome them over and over again to get to know them your whole life long, to spend time together, to go through things together. That's what it's supposed to be like with us, with Christ. We can receive him as Savior and Lord, and it begins to change our lives. And the more time we spend with him, our lives change more and more. And we become more and more like Christ. We become more like our heavenly parent. I don't know about you, but the longer I live, the more I sometimes sound, start to sound exactly like my parents, sometimes even look like them. Have you ever woke up and you look in the mirror and you think, is that my mom looking back at me or my dad? I find myself saying things that they said that I said I would never say, but yet I do. Well, John, John says that we can become not just like our earthly parents, but like our heavenly parent. You see, John, the writer of this gospel, also had a brother, a person named James. And when they were young and early in following Jesus, they had a nickname that Jesus had given them, the Sons of Thunder. They were called that because they were hotheads. They were called that because they had anger issues. There was one time when they wanted God to burn down a town just because they hadn't rolled out the welcome mat to them when they come, came preaching Jesus. And what do we call John now? We call him the disciple of love. You can read his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. What do you imagine happened to change him from a son of thunder to the disciple of love? Well, he received Jesus Christ into his life. He became a son of God, and he began to take on the character of his Father in heaven. We be he became more patient, more kind, more loving. In fact, John and James' lives became so beautiful that they are a part of the reason why Christianity exploded in those early centuries. One of the great promises of the Christmas story is that because of Jesus' birth, because of his death on the cross for our sins, if we receive him and if we believe in his name, then not only can our sins be washed away, but we can become like him. We can grow into his likeness. We become sons and daughters of God. We become people who resemble our Father in heaven there was a news story on the paper and on the TV last year about a 13-year-old boy named Jesse Hernandez. He accidentally fell into a pipe after he was walking on some wooden planks um, in an abandoned building out in Los Angeles. And he fell into this sewer pipe, and it became a race against the clock to find out where he was and rescue him. You might remember seeing on the news that there were a hundred different L.A. firefighters who joined in a 13-hour search 
through the maze of sewer pipes under the city of Los Angeles, they race to find him in that toxic environment. Finally, a firefighter had the idea to strap a camera to a flotation device and lower it down into the sewer drain pipe and let it float down, hoping to find Jesse. They used it to track the boy's location. They found some of Jesse's handprints as he made his way through the dark sewer pipe. Well, Hernandez was eventually found about a mile east of where he had accidentally entered that toxic sewer pipe. And in so many ways, the story of what God did is so much like that. God enters into our toxic, sinful environment in order to perform a rescue mission for us. And that's the good news and the truth of God's great love for us. And when we come to understand and believe it, it changes our lives. It's changed my life. And it's changed the lives of billions of other people who have come to the same conclusion and professed it by faith. That this man named Jesus, who walked on this earth as a man, was the Word made flesh. This one who spoke the universe into existence and commanded the wind and the waves, who spoke and the dead came back to life again, who was willing to be obedient, obedient to death, even death on the lowest criminal's cross. Jesus bent down all the way to the bottom so that by the shedding of his precious blood, we might be washed clean of our sin and one day actually be lifted up where he is to the place where he had come and spend eternity with him. God of God, light of light, true God of true God. That's what the Nicene Creed says about Jesus, who was for us and for our salvation came down. That's what the Nicene Creed says. What about you? What do you say? Do you profess Jesus as God in the flesh?